0: Podcast Media. What's it gonna be? Na We got a You are now listening Listen to the Highland Podcasters!
1: Rumble,
2: rumble.
1: Hey there, dreamers. And welcome to another episode
0: of High Rule Podcasters. Wait a second. This isn't an episode of Hyrule no, this is High Rule Podcasters. So not. Absolutely not. So, while our feed has been kind of light with just a couple interviews for the past summer, we have been hard at work, and some of you know this because you join us in Discord and you're present on our patreon but for those who don't we have been creating a new podcast that already has a bulk of episodes out
1: that's true it is the sandman unlocked and it covers the sandman comic and television show so we have both read-along episodes where we are starting with issue one of neil gaiman's sandman uh, that originally came out in 1988 And it is 76 issues long, and we are going through each issue one by one and talking about all of the amazing things.
0: That's absolutely fantastic. I don't know if any of you have read these comics, but I'm reading them for the first time. And I'm reading them along with Ben and his two very expert co-hosts. I'm a producer on the show. You'll you'll hear me coming every now and then, but it's mostly the three of them. And they all three know so much about this comic and it's such a great way to get into it for the first time. Now, if you only want to watch the show because you don't have time to read a comic or you can't afford the books or whatever it may be, I highly recommend that you also listen to Every Other Week where we break down the Netflix series of Neil Gaiman's Sandman.
1: That's right. So we have... Three episodes in the can already going over episodes one, two, and three of Netflix's The Sandman. And it's the same set of people Patrick's producing... I'm there co-hosting along with Ashley Mowers and Sean Dotson. Ashley is a theologian and just brings so much background with her to all of this. Sean essentially has a PhD in English Mm -hmm. literature with a focus in comics. And the amount of information that they know is absolutely absurd. So if you're really looking to be back in a college dorm room watching mm-hmm. television show or reading yep. some literature
0: and and just nerding out and this is the podcast for you it's absolutely fantastic and i gotta say i know that there's a bunch of new fantasy series and so much going on on disney plus and marvel and star wars and all that um, but this netflix show sandman is fantastic Neil Gaiman is right there. He's working on it with them. It's the creator of the comic helping make a totally fantastic television show. You can binge it all or you can watch it as we're doing one episode every other week and just dissecting the crap out of it. Yeah. So what you have now is season
1: two, episode one, which covers the TV breakdown of chapter one of Neil Gaiman's The Sandman on Netflix.
0: Which is a very accessible show. Again, I highly recommend y'all listen to it. You like Zelda, so you like stories, you like adventure. This isn't one of those shows where everything's solved with a choreographed fight scene. There's a lot of intricacies to each character. I hope that you like it, and you know, if you don't, don't worry, because we're going to be back with a lot more Zelda content so soon. So soon. We can't wait to start
1: playing Link's Awakening DX. If you haven't picked it up yet, make sure you get on it. We're gonna be back in your feeds in October with new episodes of the Hyrule Podcasters. But until then, enjoy our episode of The Sandman Unlocked.
3: I give you a coin made from a stove. I give you a knife from under the hills,
0: Hear the I give you the blood the from out of my veins. Hear
3: the I give you a song I stole from the dirt, Hear the and I give you a feather Hear the pulled from an angel's wing Hear the for darkness. you to lift up into the heavens. Hear the, darkness. Hear the, darkness.
0: Hear the, darkness. the Sandman. Unlocked.
1: Hello, dreamers, and welcome to another episode of the Sandman Unlocked. I'm one of your co-hosts, Ben Childers, and it's my pleasure to bring you along with us into our breakdown of the Sandman episode one, Sleep of the Just. I'm joined by my two illustrious co-hosts, Ashley Mowers. Hello. And Sean
2: Dotson. Hey everyone, let's get sandy. No, that doesn't work, sorry. I'm not going to do that again. We'll, cut, cut, try it. Things we'll out. cut it in post, we'll
1: cut it in post. <laughs> sorry, Patrick.
2: <laughs> so, on each TV deep dive, we'll be working our way through five sections. First, we will summarize that week's episode and provide our hot takes Then we get into our scene-by-scene breakdown. We'll wrap up by connecting the TV show back to comics and then offer our final thoughts. All right, enough stalling. Let's
3: hop into the summary. Ashley, over to you. Thanks, Sean. So episode one, Sleep of the Just, was directed by Mike Barker and then was written by Vanessa Benton, Neil Gaiman, and David S. Goyer. So you might recognize Mike Barker from Broadchurch, Handmaid's Tale, Fargo, those sorts of things. And really this first episode starts off with two grieving men of means... They're plotting to capture death. Meanwhile, the Lord of Dreams departs from his realm to reclaim an escaped nightmare. And both groups get more than they bargained for, causing an epidemic of encephalitis lethargica and the destruction of the dream world. Thanks, Ashley. So next we're going
1: to move into our hot takes. And this is just the thing that you just got to get off your chest here at the start before we even really get going into our scene by scene breakdown.
2: So, Sean, over to you first. What is your hot take? Okay, well, I think, more than anything, having watched this first episode and this first episode alone, I would say there's a bit of relief. Like, Mm. you Um, know, Netflix, not the best track record when it comes to adaptations, even adaptations of, like, beloved properties. So, it was... Nice to see that it looked great, that it, that it sounded great, that it had an understanding of you know the story, and all of that. You guys want a spicy take? I can do that too. Ooh, this this section is called hot takes. I don't know if we're ready for a spicy take. Okay, well I'll lay it on you, and uh, if it's if it's too spicy, uh, <laughs> I, there's we'll get some water or something, okay. milk I think. Let me uh, preface this by saying. I love a good beer, like almost all kinds of beers, like Chris Pilsner on a hot day, you know, inky black barrel-aged stout in the middle of winter, uh, and lots in between. But I don't think, I've never really been crazy about Guinness. Like, I don't think I've had a Guinness since my early 20s. But Guinness, if you want to sponsor us, we will totally retract that, and we would love your sponsorship of <laughs> ours. I, I stand by that also. Uh, I, I, I can I could do both, yeah. Win me over, Guinness. And, you know, the reason is that Although Guinness is, is a perfectly fine beer, especially if they sponsor us, it's like almost too smooth. Like it mm. goes down too easy. Mm. Like I like a little bit of a bite, like a mm. little sting, you know, um, some complexity, something that lets you know it's there. And uh, Guinness, I guess, doesn't really have that for me. And so for this first episode, at least, Sandman was a bit of a Guinness. <laughs> it's dark. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Uh, but it's just a little too damn smooth.
3: Hmm.
1: Okay. Yeah. We will accept your hot and spicy takes. Okay. Um, so so my hot take, I think, is is in the same vein. And that is I love how they are choosing to embrace the medium of television to tell the story. You can't tell the same story in you can't tell the story in the same way in the comic book and in the TV, right? Because the medium is the message, right? And that's kind of one of the things that we're constantly told, you know, as you know, people that are, you know, involved in media, that, you know, it matters so much how you're delivering the actual story. And they didn't fall into the trap of saying, oh, we're going to have to make sure that we represent every piece of every panel of every page uh, in our episode. And instead what we need to do is we need to take the overall story and the themes in those characters and make sure that we're doing them justice, but that we are providing, for instance, uh, the Corinthian as more of an antagonist than what we get in the comic book, I think will add a lot more driving nature uh because if you think back to the first issue we just talked about we talked about how we essentially had a protagonist in the magus and an antagonist in the sandman and that really we had an antagonist who he was an antagonist because he was in the way but he wasn't doing anything and i think having the corinthian you know i think we see him three times in the episode uh really helps to you know set a better foundation for a television show versus what you can do in a comic so that is my hot take that I like the changes that they made for the new medium. Ashley, what you got?
3: Okay, so like I, I know this is great for podcasting. I was gesturing wildly with enthusiasm while hearing Sean's spicy take and I'm eating it up um, because I too have a similar slightly different analogy but i have an analogy for how i felt about the first episode and it's kind of like when your favorite punk band starts selling merchandise at hot topic it's just like (laughs) not the same and you just die a little bit inside but you do buy the t-shirt you just can't help yourself i enjoyed the the pilot episode i did but it just, I felt like it. they sanded off the rough edges so much that we did lose some of the grit that I was really drawn to in the first place. For example, I don't really, I don't really believe Alex's storyline anymore. He's just kind of lost on me. And I, the initial introduction of Tom Stur- Sturridge as Morpheus gave me a little bit of Robert Pattinson, Edward Cullen vibes, and I was getting frustrated about it. Like, oh. beautifully lit, and that's not code for that's the only thing that's good about it, and I'm trying to find something nice to say. It is beautifully lit. I think that the way that they've made things actually physically darker in the spaces and then key lit certain spots to highlight and draw reference to panels in the comic were very well done. But there were just certain smoothings of the timeline that I was like, I don't think that was necessary. We've got something like Stranger Things already where we're in the 80s. Why did they have to push the timeline forward just to make it more um, recognizable to a modern audience? I didn't think it was necessary. But that's like, that's my spicy hot take. Uh, Not exactly a flaming hot Cheeto, but maybe a nacho cheese. And definitely not
1: Takis level of, uh, of spicy yet either, right?
3: Oh, no, I could never get into (laughs) Takis. Just a mouthfeel issue, really. Mm,
1: Definitely, definitely. (laughs) All right, so with those hot takes out of the way, we're going to jump into our scene-by-scene breakdown. Uh, So since this is the first episode, uh, essentially I am going to prompt each scene. And so I've taken the episode, and I have whittled it down to six overall scenes. I'll give a recap of what happened during that scene in the television show, and then we will open it up for general discussion. Scene one, we start with a voiceover from Dream, letting us know he is the king of dreams and nightmares. The shot follows a flying raven as it winds its way through the Dreaming and to the Sandman. He is gathering his tools, as he is about to pursue a rogue nightmare. At the same time, John Hathaway arrives at the residence of the Magus, or Roderick Burgress, in Witchcross, England. He brings the Magdalen Grimoire, a book of spells, so that the Magus can use it to capture death. We then see a dual shot of Burgress casting the spell, and the Sandman confronting his escaped nightmare, the Corinthian. Weak from his travels,
2: the Sandman is captured. See, now I'm wondering about this <laughs> Twilight Connection that Ashley mentioned. Is it, I haven't seen those, so I don't know, but I thought as a cold open, it worked pretty well in establishing the rules of the world, right? Like it gave us plenty to go on there I think one of the real triumphs of the show I think is Tom Sturge's voice and bearing as dream like I, I, I buy it I buy I buy the the deliberateness and the pace at which he speaks you know in if you if you look at the comic uh, all of Morpheus's word balloons are those squiggly black balloons with 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 white lettering and you know when you do that the character sounds like something different, you know, not necessarily normal. And then it's hard to communicate in a medium where you need, you know, an actor actually saying these things. So I I thought the fact that his voice sounded regal was pretty successful. It could have gone, could have gone very poorly, I think, you know, if they hadn't been so careful in their casting. I will also note that I absolutely loved the transitions between the waking world and the dreaming that mm. bit where Jessamy the Raven is mm-hmm. flying and flips from following John Hathaway's car traveling through England into the dreaming. I thought it was just a, it was, you know, for an all kind of digital sort of transition, it worked really well. It looked really cool. Yeah. I, lo- I, lo- I watched that again this morning. I, I love that scene. Yeah. And, and, and the same thing goes for dream actually. Throwing his little sand up in the air and winding up in uh, in in Berlin to con- to confront the Corinthian. I thought that was an extremely cool transition. Great way to travel, like teleport sort of thing.
3: Uh, yeah, no, I think Jessmi's flight is beautiful, but I did have that immediate knee-jerk reaction of like okay warner brothers like we've done the harry potter owl flight thing and i can we like find any other way to introduce a, a fantasy world at all but i like <laughs> people I, love drone shots right now they really drone do are, <laughs> they, they're like the coolest thing and, and i thought at least this brought something novel to the drone shot
1: by having it be digitized having it do like sure. the flip you know so
3: yeah. <laughs> sure but i was like humming the john williams main theme hedwig's theme in my head as it was happening i was like <laughs> Warner Brothers, you have more than one note to play with here. Come on, um, but uh, but I did. You're right. I did like that transition. I like how how um, the sand is used. The thing about the Corinthian, <laughs> I was expecting to be way more afraid of him, and we'll we'll get there. Um, but I really liked the interaction we had between the Corinthian and Morpheus in that sort of immediate fear he has when he realizes who's coming for him. Uh, I thought that was really well acted. I wasn't certain at first Mm. how that dynamic was going to play once I realized, oh, the Corinthians already out got it. Right, but right. seeing that fear play out in his voice and in his face, even though we can't, obviously we can't see any emotion. He can't communicate any emotion through his eyes. You don't understand how hard that is for an actor to not have that vehicle, that tool. Um, oh, that's a good point. Yeah, that's a good you know? point. So, so to be able to communicate that in every other way possible, I thought he did an excellent job. So a scene that I wasn't certain about at first uh, really was, I think was really well done. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how that dynamic plays out.
1: And I just thought, again, kind of reflecting what Sean had said earlier, they just did it like the, the three of us here have read the comics, have read comics on comics, have read, you know, essays on these comics, have thought about these comics. Most of the people who are going to boot up Netflix and click the Sandman button, have maybe heard of the Sandman during the last month of marketing. <laughs> That's it. That's it, right? And the fact, so I, I just checked. The Sandman is number one this weekend in 87 countries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which means they obviously did, and to me, kind of reflecting on both what you said during your hot takes, it did feel a little bit like, even with this like intro, it was a lot like what... Um, Uh, JJ Abrams did with the force awakens. Like he understood the assignment and he hit the assignment. Like you may not have liked what he chose to do, but that's okay. He was tasked with bringing a whole set of new people in and reviving, you know, a franchise, you know, after the prequels and you, whatever happened with the other two movies and how you feel about those, like he definitely did the thing with the force awakens, even though it hits a lot of the same beats, even if it uses a, a Hedwig style, like fly (laughs) in, in those kind of things. And it does a good job. I mean, I timed this first part. It's four minutes and like 40 seconds and you know, okay, we got antagonist. We got protagonist. We got someone captured. You've been introduced to about five key characters. And now like you're off to the races. Whereas, it took an entire issue to do all this, you know, when you look at, like, the comic. And that's where, when I was thinking about, like, my hot take, the medium is so important in thinking about, like, right, it's a television show for a totally different set of people than uh, than the comic.
3: No, that's that's totally fair. The first time I watched it, I watched it alone. And then my husband came home and was like, can you watch this with me? I need to know if I'm being fair or not. And he's like, all right, because mm. he hasn't read any of the comics. And we sat down and watched it, and the episode ended, and he's like, so what what were your complaints? I really enjoyed that a lot. Now I want to read them. And I was like, <sighs> okay, well, first of all, uh, John Hathaway drives up in a horse-drawn carriage, not in a car, so, and he's like, Ashley, okay, come on. <laughs> so I totally know I'm being way too nitpicky. This is just one of those, like, overly hyped-up fan things that you you want it to succeed so, so much that, There's like a certain anxiety that comes through in watching something for the first time that is an adaptation of a favorite piece of literature because you want it to be perfect so everyone else can see how perfect it is. And so when you like perceive literally any differences, it's like, why did they change that? What if people don't like it now? And it's like, I doubt people are going to notice that. So I do find it very helpful to watch it with somebody who has no concept as to how it goes. Yeah. Sean, last thoughts on this scene
2: and then we'll move on to the next one. One other thing I liked is in that opening segment, just seeing some residents of the dreaming, seeing people who, you know, seeing those little flashes of what this world contains and just them kind of flexing their muscle and showing how vast and imaginative Mm -hmm. it can be. Uh, I think that that was exciting. And the final thing I'll say is that when Dream confronted the Corinthian, uh, that sort of inky black cloak that floated up around him, mm. I also thought that was very cool. I thought it was properly menacing, you know, and it was it was a, a pleasure to look at.
1: Moving on to our next scene, the Corinthian visits Roderick Burgress and lets him know that he has captured Dream of the Endless, Death's brother. And he gives him advice on how to ensure that Dream stays imprisoned. We are also introduced to Dream's raven, Jessamay, who is watching the two of them collude together. Roderick then goes to Dream and asks him to give his son back in return for his freedom. Dream does not respond. Ashley, let's throw it over to you first.
3: Yeah. What Um, do you feel about this scene? I enjoyed these scenes um, because now that we've encountered the Corinthians... Dynamic with Dream, seeing him interact with a different character entirely. I'm like, okay, now I see why this guy is a nightmare. He is really terrifying, even when he's just standing talking to you politely. The whole sort of like <laughs> genteel uh, manner. Seasucker. Yeah, serious sucker suit the the little hat and everything. I'm just like, I don't trust you. Absolutely not. <laughs> get get the hints when stranger he just danger. Kinda, stranger <laughs> danger. Right, exactly when stranger he just swans into his house. I'm just like oh, absolutely not. Turn around. You're I'm terrified for you, Roderick. This shouldn't be happening. Um, I do find it really interesting that he comes in knowing who he has and is the reason why then Morpheus or Dream ends up being in that glass egg Mm. type shape that I find kind of interesting. I'd be Mm. curious to see if, and this is me again, me getting super nitpicky. If we hear or see any scenes as to like why the Corinthian would have such kind of knowledge, or if it's just a, we're just going to trust that he knows some stuff with Mm. his intimate relationship with his own um, creator. I, I don't know where that's going. I do see that it sets up that there is this sort of antagonism with regard to rebelling against one's creator, but I'm, it is interesting to me that he has as much knowledge as he does for someone who's supposed to be more powerful than a god. I do like that we that he also understands and warns Roderick about Jessie and her ability to not only observe very closely, but listen and then report back uh, to the dreaming. Mm. That's very helpful. I don't think people wouldn't necessarily get that right away. And then the posture with which the actor Personifies Dream, that very closed off sort of hunch that he has, uh, works very well, I think, again, as a one to one comparison with the comic. The face was a little pouty for my taste, which is why I compare him to Edward <laughs> Cullen. But again, I think this is where the lighting comes in really well uh, because it makes him look very alien, uh, the way they've lit and where they've added the shadow. Um, I think. With the introduction with his voice at the beginning of the episode, you're set up to to take him more powerfully. If we were just introduced to him as a silent figure, I don't know that I would mm. be on board right away. But be, because sure. we've heard his voice already, I'm willing to go there um, because you, you kind of have that resonance that he's created that now you kind of trust. Yes, this is, in fact, a very powerful creature or entity um, as people are encountering him. So I'm, I'm willing to go with it. But. I do, I do think that these are setting up the, the players on the chessboard very interestingly.
2: Yeah, I think that's a, a great point. I think the way he was seen in the... Um, there was a Vulture review that called it Bubble Jail. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the way that we saw Dream in his Bubble Jail um, really did sort of highlight that alien quality that you mentioned. You know, you see sort of highlights his... Musculature that's like folded away from you and things like that, and it, 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 it looks. It's it's very effective in that sense. Other than that, the scene was a lot of, you know, setting things up. Mm-hmm. The character of of Roderick Burgess is a little hard to pin down in the television version because, you know, you have this introduction of the, his his desire to see his. Son return to him, but then you also just see him like, you know, being a sort of power-hungry dude. It doesn't really, it like almost tips into a sort of, uh, you know, sympathetic portrayal, but never really, never really completes that move. Like he's still, it's as though it sort of tries to add a bit more dimension, but ultimately, because ultimately, it still ends up a fairly a fairly you know one-dimensional character there. Right. Yeah,
3: yeah, well I guess that's why I was so perplexed as to why they chose to give him a first born son before Alex because it's like what does this really achieve? I'm not I'm still not sympathetic to him. He's still an awful person.
2: Yeah, and I I suppose it sort of it it drives, you know, our knowledge of Alex's character a bit, but we see so many other points at which he's you know, belittled or distrusted or incapable of standing up to his father and things like that. Like, we get so much of that already. I'm not sure why that additional, I'm not sure what that additional element really achieves mm-hmm. uh, there. But I do think it was a good way to, you know, to lay out, again, this is all, this is a lot of setting the table. And so I think in, you know, having that that bit of extra introduction from the Corinthian. It was helpful to viewers, um, you know, in, in addition to, to driving the story forward and, um, you know, continuing to set up future conflicts. Um, they also seemed to kind of use that bit to explain the way that the timeline works a little bit, right? Because the Corinthian is like, is like, oh, you know, you'll have a bit of power from just these, the the, the pouch and the ruby and the helm, you know, you'll have extended life mm. and the power to manipulate others, right. right? So, I mean, you need a way to make this, these characters last a hundred years, right? <laughs> um, so I think they just kind of shove that in there and maybe hope we don't think too hard about it.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: All right, scene number three. Dream has been imprisoned for about a decade at this point. We see a teenaged Alex working one of his father's parties. We're introduced to Ethel, who becomes Roderick's lover. Alex takes over for the guards and is caught by his father, telling Dream that he would let him out if he could. Roderick then forces Alex to kill Jessamay, Dream's raven. As Alex half-heartedly hunts Jessamay, She lights a match to cause a fire so she can go and try and help dream. Alex comes in and shoots Jessime. All right. So this one was pretty big from from my perspective because what it really showed was Alex in the, and we'll get into this more in the comic, you know, he he has a slightly different role in in the comic because he uh, he's the he's the only son and and he takes over. And in this case, you can just see this really at the end of the day, just like cowardice that Alex has. Right? He's he's too fearful to do the right thing at the moment when he could right and instead uses that cowardice to try and get him back in his good graces with his father by actually killing Jesme and then of course the very first thing that you know that Roderick says to him is you know essentially you know you're so dumb you could have broken the the glass right which is um you know, which is our kind of little cue as to as to a bit of foreshadowing that we get later. And so it was just one of those things where you can really see that it's that moment that Dream, thinking that he might have somebody to work through, is going to um, harbor uh, a debt against Alex uh, that he will repay later on.
2: Yeah, I, I actually really liked the this... It's a new element, but this connection between between Alex and Dream and this almost sort of like, will they, won't they kind of thing, you know? Um, I I thought that worked really well because it's a TV show and you need like acting, right? You can't have the (laughs) almost total passivity of the comic book where again, sorry to get too much into, into comic book differences, but, but, you know, we talked about how just how passive that first Mm -hmm. issue Mm -hmm. is. Very much so. And by the time, you know, Roderick Burgess is dead in the comic you have Dream trapped in his glass prison, you have Alex, who is just as trapped in his father's shadows and can't do anything differently, and neither of them are really moving anywhere. But when you have actual moving human beings on the screen, then as you mentioned, you have to do something. They gotta do that. something. You have to do something, right. And I thought I thought that um that you know, the way they tease that potential connection between them. Adding a bit more of a of a sympathetic bent to Alex's character, I thought it worked really well. And then I thought the sudden bloody death of Mm. Jessamy Mm. was a really powerful addition there. I mean, I think it was it was really just like the one you know actual shock of the episode i would say yeah,
3: yeah. no that was pretty gruesome because even the way they animated it it was like a balloon bursting yeah. I, I like gasped yeah um <laughs> yeah. uh, it so was it was absolutely horrifying and the, an the actor who plays alex did a good job of also looking shocked by his own actions which i appreciated right. because it's so out of character for him except in this moment when suddenly you know he's being ordered by his dad and it's a whole, you know, he's beaten with a cane. Um, you know, what are you going to do? Um, the, the thing that I wish we got a little bit more of is Sykes just because he's a, you know, he's, clearly a critical figure in this house and he is a critical figure in the original narrative so i i we have this great moment of familiarity between alex and sykes you know when alex is caught reading the newspaper and we get that hint of oh this is what's happening in the world because of this that i i just wish we had had more moments like that but i can appreciate why we have to you know cut for time what did, what did you think oh sorry. Go, no go ahead please
2: so, sorry, it, it just it made me think. What did you think then of the heightening of Ethel Cripps' role? Um, well, yeah, that's actually you know, in the absence, <laughs> of something?
3: right? That's that's actually what I was going to get to next. I I appreciate that Ethel has. More agency, but while they've heightened her agency, they haven't given us much of a reason for why she's there. Like she just shows up; she kind of just swans in. We have no idea why she's at this party or why she'd be curious to be there. Apart, like we don't know if she's a socialite, we don't know if she's a grifter, we don't know if she just goes what from. What does that... she want? Yes. Right, exactly. What is wh- what is her motivation? Um, and she just kind of comes in. Oh, I,
1: I thought they actually. I thought they. I mean, I thought they stated it really nicely, where she's like, "You can introduce me to the Magus." I mean, that that's what she wants. in my mind,
3: right? Is, but for what? That's
1: like what she says to Alex. Oh, I.
3: That's I guess what just like.
1: Uh, okay. she just
2: social climbing? Like, yeah, hey, this see, is a I rich, see. powerful guy. Let me get in. And then, th- 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 is does that jibe with the characterization that she's then given to be a little bit more, like she, she's motherly, she's motherly, right? Right. right. She's, right. She's, Fair enough.
3: No, yeah, fair exactly. Enough. Exactly. So she comes in. We're not clear about her motive. But then she's super nice the whole time. I thought she was playing Alex in that first scene. I was like, oh, okay, here we go. Here we go. I guess I get it. They're giving her more lines mm. this time. But, like, why Why did was she here for? And then for her to, to, you know, end up being a relatively nice person, I'm like, no, you're supposed to be bad. And I'm supposed to hate you. <laughs> like, what are you doing here? <laughs> um, so So I'm... I'm kind of conflicted because I like the fact Mm. that she has a speaking role and that she, you know, has a bit more depth here, but I'm also suspicious of it. And I don't, if I'm going to be suspicious of of somebody, I want there to be an actual reason for suspicion, not just me not trusting anything because of who I am as a person. (laughs) I'm I'm excited to see if they,
1: if they fly, if they continue to, to flesh out that character. It, It seems like, you know, she, you know she was in one of the final scenes of, of episode 1 you know so it does seem like they they may continue to use her a bit more than mm-hmm. uh, than we may have seen
2: in the original text right yeah i would i would be happy with that i would like to know i think it was effective in the sense that i would like to know more about her right yeah sure yeah yeah, um, yeah.
1: yeah. so just so listeners know we're we're, we're watching these as as we do them so we're not we didn't we did not binge all 10 and kind of know (laughs) what happened because we we want to have more of a a realistic conversation with you all at home and so you know we 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 don't know we know what happens in the comic but we've already seen enough divergences from the comic that you know i have a a general idea of the story arc but i don't know the individual actions and that's
2: really exciting for me so Mm -hmm. and hopefully that's exciting to you as you listen here before we move on to the next scene i also just want to flag that like the morning after the party where ethel is introduced mm. uh there's that like post like orgy scene it's a post orgy scene mm-hmm. right yeah. like yeah. they'd had a oh, big old orgy big time right. <laughs> and there's a there's a man passed out on a chair cuddling a taxidermied armadillo <laughs> and i just thought that was
3: a <laughs> he, nice little
2: detail
1: I miss
3: that? that's amazing
2: <laughs> that's amazing
3: <laughs>
1: Did you see that on your second, third, or fourth uh, (laughs) watch-through? That that was the second watch-through. The second watch-through? Nice, nice, nice. All right, everyone. We're going to go take a walk through Destiny's Garden, and we'll be right back. In our fourth scene, we learn that Ethel is pregnant, but Roderick wants Ethel to have an abortion. She flees with Dream's ruby, mask, the grimoire, pouch, and 200000 in cash. Roderick confronts Dream and asks for his help once again in bringing Ethel back. Dream does not respond. Alex attempts to comfort his father, which causes Roderick to berate and attack Alex once again. In the scuffle, Roderick hits his head on the glass prison and dies. Alex appears ready to release the Sandman, but is dissuaded by Sykes. Sean, you want to kick us off?
2: Okay, and I promise I did like this television program. <laughs> However, Burgess's death. I'm sorry, it was silly to me. It was just silly. I agree. Oh. <laughs> I mean, hmm. I don't I don't know what else you do. I don't I don't know if a dramatic Charles dance death scene as he succumbs to old age like what we saw in the comic just kind of a broken beaten man, pathetically begging for what he thought he deserved the whole time. I don't know if that would have been better, but the guy slipped and then he smacked his head on the bubble jail. And it's just, it felt, it felt a little silly. I <laughs> well, yeah, say. especially when mm. you call
3: it bubble mm. jail.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, actually,
1: it sounds like you agree with Sean's, I, Sean's point here. Well,
3: I, I do actually. Cause I think that Charles dance is a, a, An extraordinary actor, and I think he can carry a scene in which he is – what I imagined in my head was going to happen is that he had aged considerably. He's staring at Dream. He's angry at all the things that he does not get to keep. You go into a monologue with him starting off angry, like we're used monologue to him seeing. Yes. yes. And then progressively get to more and more upset and sad and starts grieving all of the things he's lost. So instead of being mad anymore, now he's upset and grieving and actually feeling the full weight of his grief, both of his son, of his youth, of his power, and having sobbing, which, again, he can pull off. We've seen it in other media. Um, and then just, you know, maybe have a heart attack or something, something else that would allow him to have, like, a very mortal end, not just a, oops, we had an accident. It just didn't – this is part of what made Alex's character arc not really so believable to me. Um It just didn't seem like a like something that he was really pent up to do in the moment. Um, Whereas I feel like having a narrative in which you were actually confronting mortality and your own uh, hand in the life that you've built for yourself. I think that's I think that's worth addressing in an actor's performance as opposed to like a really uh, clipped scene. Uh, That's my opinion. I would have loved to see that. So I disagree with both of you. <laughs> um,
1: and primarily, I, I disagree because I thought, what a better way to take someone out who thought they were in total control of everything than by literally killing them with their two failings. Failing number one is how he decided to treat Alex and bringing him up. And number two was capturing Dream because one of the things that I feel like they made very clear we outside of that one party like and that was one party that we saw and we saw that people tend to want to like show up here but w- we're not seeing any other glamour, any other sophistication. We're not seeing the cult is being like rebuilt when we see the inside of the house we're, we're not seeing that it has you know transformed into this you know lively place where there are people all around it really looks like they took someone who was a sad, pathetic man who had some innate magical ability and they killed him in a way that is representative of the kind of person that he is, which is he is a sad, lonely, broken man and he is going to die because of his two major failings in his life, which is the failure to adequately care for the child that survived and to do the right thing in terms of letting dream go. And I really found that to be pretty powerful because again, in the show that in the, in the story that we're being presented with right now. So leave the comic book to the side. We don't know any <laughs> of that information, right? Like in the story that we're being presented with, that's what we are seeing. I mean, we see him, you know, stomping around the house and yelling at a Raven and he, he doesn't look like someone who is in full control. And so to die in that way, when he is not in full control to me was very, uh, was a very, it made sense for him to die in the way that they are telling the television show.
3: I, I don't know that I can interpret Burgess as being all that sad or old or, or lonely. He, he clearly had his own, you know, coven going before he gained notoriety. Um, he had his own people following him in their own way. Ethel shows up for a reason, but then all, not only just shows up in at the height, but also sticks around and wants to stay and probably would have stayed if he had not demanded that she get an abortion that she didn't want. Um, so there's, mm. there's something to him that's, he's got to have some sort of gravitas or charm or something that keeps people around. Like even people who are, you know, powerful in their own way, people do get tired th- of them over time if they realize they're not going to be able. To rest the power that they see in somebody, or that they have in control for themselves. So, I, I believe, or at least the the Burgess that I think was presented to the audience here, um, divorced of the comic book, is more powerful than than maybe he feels in this moment or is this scene depicts. So, I don't know, Sean. You were about to say something?
2: Uh, no, I think Ben, you you make a good point on that sort of poetic justice. Of his demise Uh, and I think the only thing then that I could say would like bother me about that is that it was just a little too neat it just Mm. the edges folded up together just a little too Hmm. neatly which you know isn't necessarily a failing but just I suppose I would have liked to see the the show dig a bit more there strive a bit more there you're so
3: much more tactful than (laughs) Um, I am
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's like we have a balance that's a good thing that's a good thing um, does anyone want to before we move on to the our, our penultimate scenes does anyone want to talk about the, the cowardice of Alex uh, in this in this moment
3: I mean, I do, I do like the fact that Sykes chimes in and says specifically, what would your father think? I do appreciate that, because I think if there hadn't been that line, it would have been a little bit like, why why isn't he? Like, this would free him of, of so much responsibility that he hated, hated in the first place. So having that line added, I think, adds a lot to that moment that would have been lost otherwise.
2: Yeah, I mean, I do think his... I, I liked his sort of journey as a character and, you know, a lot of what the show did was was, was shading in Alex and making him a bit more than just, um, you know, just a continuation of the story. Like, uh, the, 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 the episode was very much um, about him and around him and him, you know, being uh, as trapped in this, in his role as Dream was, and I, I, I thought that was that that was that was a good move, and it and the actors they had playing him uh, all did a great job in terms of communicating that. I thought he conveyed extremely well how close he came to doing something different. Right, I think that was that fully came across. Like you saw him wanting to do something different, and then you saw him try to be like. Well, I'll have to think about it, you know, and in just that very much the, that way that you might say to someone trying to like sell you at a store or something when you're just trying to get out of there and get <laughs> yourself a little space, right? Uh, like that was, you know, that, that, was, that was a maybe that was really a no, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Excellent.
1: All right. So for our fifth scene today, first we see Paul, a groundskeeper, comfort Alex following his father's death. Then we see that Ethel has given birth to a baby boy. Alex leads Paul downstairs and shows him their unwilling guest. Alex comes and asks Dream to not harm them if they release Dream. Dream does not respond. Then a much older Alex is talking to Dream, telling him that all he ever wanted was to be free of him. As Paul wheels Alex out, Paul rolls the wheel of the chair over the protective circle and gives Dream a knowing look. Then, one of the guards lets out a yawn and starts dreaming of a sandy beach in Majorca. All of a sudden, Dream stands in front of him and scoops up a handful of sand. The guards start shooting at him. We then cut to see that the guard is dreaming and is shooting at the glass prison. The prison shatters and Dream teleports away. Ashley?
3: okay i have to thinking? just say i this I actually was excited about this this is something i liked so people can relax <laughs> i really like the fact that mm. alex and paul are together i thought that in the comic book too i was like they've got to be that's there's no way that you just stick around Obviously. for that long right there's got to be some interest so i i right. actually like they made it much more explicit what was that they made it much more explicit yeah right exactly and they thought that was necessary right, like- um i i like the fact that alex had one nice thing in his life <laughs> Honestly, um, I like that he already that Paul already worked for the grounds um, and, you know, that they just met up in that regard and that you immediately have these two trust one another and trust Alex can trust him enough to bring him downstairs and show him basically what his greatest shame is, you know, that there's this being locked up in their basement. I mean, honestly, if you have a crush on somebody, you don't show them the weirdest thing about you first go. (laughs) (laughs) And he's just like, great, I'm in love with you, want to see the guy we have locked up in our basement. Like, that just doesn't happen. So, like, there's clearly, like... There's a lot of trust there and I think I think that's necessarily so and I I think you see that. So I I appreciate that sort of mini love story that we get. I like that we're getting a Silent Dream still and that you get them pleading or yeah well you get them both pleading with him to just talk to them I do find that that's an interesting sort of motivation for Alex now that it's not even just I'm gonna let you go uh but I just want to hear your voice first like I just want I just want you to say something I think that's kind of curious to me and that Paul is the one to say you maybe be a little nicer (laughs) and try to see it from his perspective that whole sort of transition from you know Alex being this beaten down kid to being the master of the house now and also having a relationship independent of his father and someone else now pleading with him to be the person he wanted to be earlier on I find kind of compelling Um, I wish we had more of that but I do think that once Dream is released that whole very quick sort of turn of events um, was really beautifully done yeah I agree and
2: Ashley, that was so, that like that is such a good point. That I didn't I hadn't thought of that at all. Um, but that was like now I'm very moved by that moment of intimacy with Alex <laughs> showing Paul like the worst thing about him, yeah. right? Like I mean that's a that's a that's a that's a very scary thing. Mm-hmm. And it's something you have to do with anyone who you like really care about, right? right. And um, and the fact that it can be rendered in this this, you know, fantastic way in, you know, on screen, is really one of the it's a very Sandman moment. It's really uh, you know, when you when you take these very human feelings and times of your life, but it's all shown in this in this horrific or or, or fantasy-like or or mythological manner uh that's that that is that that's that's a really true Sandman moment right there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, I thought I thought the 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 dream breakout scene was 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 pretty great like like using the fear that the guard had for seeing dreams suddenly appear there to get him to start shooting and to break the glass case, mm-hmm. very clever, and mm-hmm. it worked out really well. And it was uh, that was actually like kind of cooler than Sam Keith's drawings in the comic, honestly. Ooh, <laughs> Shots fired at Sam Keith. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I love Sam Keith, but but the but the way that that Ooh, part of the backtracking now, <laughs> the way that that part of the story. Actually, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk some shit about Sam Keith in our next. Uh, Ooh, our next Sam up, Keith isn't episode, gonna be a guest anytime <laughs> in soon. our next comic <laughs> episode. No, okay. <laughs> He was not happy on the comic. Okay, just so everyone knows, he did not—he did not dig his work on that, and I, I think it shows a little bit in the next issue. We'll talk about it on the next in our next episode. No, that's so true. But I, I think that there was a very clever way of, of of doing that breakout scene, giving us something a little bit new, while of course having that very classic visual of you know dream floating away uh, through that through that portal. Ashley.
3: Yeah, it just with regard to the portal and everything, and that process of shooting him open and free from the glass bubble. Um, it- you see how much pent up power was there that entire time with how quickly everything happens once he is free. And I, I really loved how you do get the full sense and scope of his power, even when he's at his weakest. I love the, just that the speed it speeds up, it speeds up. And so to Mm, be able to suddenly have him just boom out, gone, done, uh, they just, they transitioned through that very well.
1: Absolutely. In our last scene, we see a progressively de-aging Alex follow a black cat that turns into Dream. Dream gives Alex the gift of eternal sleep as punishment. After more than a century of being imprisoned, Dream is back in the dreaming and is found by Lucien. Lucian and Dream head towards the ivory gates of the Dreaming. As the gates open, we see that the Dreaming has decayed in Dream's absence. And as the gates close behind them,
2: we see his tower crumble. Okay, well, I mean, seeing the scene in which Dream confronts Alex, I thought that looked great. I thought that... That shadowy dream figure yes. with the bright shining, yes. with the, the pinpricks of light mm-hmm. uh, for the eyes was was menacing and effective and um, just great.
1: And Neil, Neil Gaiman talked about that on Twitter a little bit because people were saying like, oh, why why don't his eyes always look like that? And pretty much like production wise, they just couldn't. So they used them where they felt like it would make the most amount of sense. And that was one of the spots where it was like, yeah, it looks phenomenal right there. So mm-hmm. let's
2: use it right there. Yeah, and I hope they continue that throughout the series. I hope, like, we get these, like, occasional moments of that
3: well i I think we will honestly because in this first episode from the beginning when um alex is talking to dream for like the first time and he talks about like potentially letting him out he doesn't have the Mm. glint and then suddenly his eyes do start to glow a little bit Mm. and almost like he's like okay i have some power and i have some hope and anytime his hope died that's when you see the glimmer go again so now that he's at Ooh, you know, nice. relatively decent strength at least for this realm. Um, seeing them, you know, glamour as much as they do is like, oh shoot! This is my first sign that I'm in danger. Yeah,
2: and, um, and I think I think showing the sort of de aging Alex go through the uh, you know as he as he goes through his dream worked just as well as in the comic. Mm-hmm, I thought that was great, mm-hmm. and I also think that seeing dreams crumbled palace and realm uh, worked really well. Like, you know, you got to see it so briefly and it's all its glory in the beginning. And I, I like that it was literally falling apart as he was standing there mm-hmm. with Lucienne, right? There's like pieces falling off uh, and crashing onto the floor, like during that part, <laughs> you know, the the sense of loss was communicated very well. And, um, you know, that all that was effective now, I don't know if we need to... I don't know if I want to get too in right now to a difference of the comics, but, I mean, eternal slumber. (laughs) I I, know.
3: Thank you. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. Yes. I had it in all capital letters. (laughs) It's like... So he, he,
2: he takes a nap. That, that, I mean, because this whole time, this whole time, this, this omnipotent being has been imprisoned and forced to, you know, forced to hold back. And you wonder, what is, this, what is this being as old as the universe going to do when somebody does this kind of thing to him? Like, what does that kind of vengeance look like? And it looks like a coma. And it's just... <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I I I would remind you that
1: while Alex um, certainly didn't free Dream in the television show, we also it also seems like he didn't he didn't engage with him in the same way that his father did. He wasn't continually asking for things. He wasn't asking for power and for wealth and all those kind of things. He just he just wanted it. He wanted Dream to no longer be a prisoner. But he didn't want to have to make that hard decision. And so he got a coward's gift instead of getting a someone that might have, you know, done actual malicious things to Dream outside of killing Jessime and not freeing him. And so I do think that uh, unlike what I think, all three of us are alluding to, uh, which we'll get into in the next section, I guarantee it um, is that there there is a difference there, and that he is a much different actor than than what when how he engages with Dream, and I think that plays into part of it because even the the line de- delivery that that he says there, where he essentially tells him, you know, then your gift will be eternal eternal slumber, it is a, it does seem that Dream in that moment does seem to pity him. And the fact that he has seen him as that teenage self, right, and not as like the older self, I think there is something there that that can be that can be pulled out. Although I think we were all a bit disappointed that we didn't get a bunch of grotesque core to end the episode as well. Uh, Ashley, in all caps, <laughs> anything you like to expound on? Um,
3: yeah, I th- I thought they did the initial sort of approach to dream in that throne room area they did that really well my favorite part of this section of scenes though was is when dream ends up in his own realm and his eyes open and he sees lucien for the first time and he just kind of grins like he's like home and says lucien i I melted i was like okay okay tom sturridge you can be morpheus any day like i don't mind i don't mind so much now (laughs) you're okay you're okay in my book. You can keep doing this. But um, just that familiarity and seeing him relaxed for the first time is like, oh, thank God. Finally, he gets to have his own <laughs> happy moment. So I thought that reunion was really pretty, just really beautiful. Um and, and how impressive are those gates? Like, you see how large they are yes. in, a, in a comic book panel, but then to see them to scale and with the way that they kind of warped the aspect ratio as they were walking through them was incredible, just incredibly done because it does yep. make it seem uh, – entirely ethereal as they're walking through and you see kind of warp on the edges of the frame just really really well done yeah i would love to see those
2: like laid out all as a diagram like every carving and things like that just know exactly (laughs) what was on there
3: oh absolutely i was like trying to pause and look at various things i know you see his helm at one point you see a face that looks like it was drawn by one of the other original artists but it was hard to pinpoint everything So even though they aren't super keen on having
1: visitors, we're going to go check in with Desire and see what's going on over in their realm. So next, we're going to take the TV show and see how it interprets the original comic. If you've never read the comic, no worries. We'll be sure to explain our references thoroughly. And, of course, you can find our read-along episodes in this very feed. Ashley, over to you. What do you want to connect back here with the comic?
3: Ooh, okay. So one of the first things I want to connect back to the comic is this reinterpretation of Witchcross and uh, Roderick Burgess as a character overall. Um, You know, in the television show, we see a very thin, gaunt man. He walks with a cane. He has lost a firstborn son and he's clearly motivated by that grief he has a much younger son uh and alex and he is connected at some point with dr john hathaway who we're told in the episode he is just found out um has been killed you know his destroyer went down and all is lost the reason i kind of want to focus on on this pair in particular is because in the comic book, Roderick Burgess doesn't have another son apart from Alex. So it does change the dynamic quite a bit. Also, the way that Roderick is depicted, drawn in the comic, he's much more of a bruiser. He he's looks more youthful. He's got a bald head, but it looks more like it's been shaved as opposed to just naturally aging. He's, um, he's a big bad wolf, right? Right. Like, exactly. He's, he's- big he's leering
2: he's got these large features he looks like he looks like he'll devour you if you show any weakness
3: right exactly this looks like somebody who is constantly power hungry in every way possible in his physique in his intellect you know in this sort of metaphysical power that he's gained over time he looks like somebody that would you would want protecting you that you would want to be on the right side of at all times so it makes sense that he has a following not just by money alone alone, but by everything he's been able to amass in his own personality and and by his own charm. And he is charming because you see him with a really young Ethel, uh, and he's just this imposing figure. So it makes sense that he would be able to bully somebody like Dr. John Hathaway into hearing Mm. him out for the first time. The other thing that I just didn't quite find believable with... Dr. Hathaway is, he's told that his son has died that same day, but we don't see a ton of grief from him. He's just kind of like, yeah, his destroyer went down. So that thing that we were talking about at the museum, and I just... I don't get the same sense of desperation from him. I get more awe and wonder from him in the episode, whereas in the comic book, I feel like you get more grief and desperation because he is putting his life on the line. He's putting his career on the line in the comic book to the point where he ends up taking his own life out of just shock and embarrassment and shame. Um, And he tries to right his wrong by writing down everything that happened and telling people where to go and where to find the maudlin grimoire. And then we see that through his own magical prowess, uh, Roderick is able to burn that letter up before it can be used as evidence against him. So you see all this other power that he has that he doesn't need the maudlin grimoire to do. Actually, an act. Um, you see how imposing he is. You don't question or wonder why anybody would surround themselves around him. And he's known in the press as the Demon King, um, and you and you believe it because we have all this evidence for for this claim and for this title. Uh, whereas in the show, you just see a rich guy. Like that's that's all we know about him is he's a rich guy who lost a son. Um, and so great, so he used his money and his estate to create this you know realm for himself but without his money and his estate he probably wouldn't have gained much that's my opinion in the crossover so i'm always i'm a little more pro comic book burgess because he seems scarier to me whereas in in the television show it just feels like a rich white guy that wasn't told no when he should have been um (laughs) like that's just my opinion sean what's your opinion come to the dark side (laughs) <laughs> no, I agree with that. I mean, it, it's
2: um, it. Uh, and Charles Dance's show, like they like, it's like they wanted Tywin Lannister, Charles Dance, but they didn't give the they, the the writing wasn't there to 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 convey that. say because that is the quality he had in Game of Thrones, right? Like like he 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 was a, a manipulative, charismatic, uh, successful bully in that show. Um, but those those the same character moments that made that possible in game of thrones weren't there in this episode of sandman and of course we talked in our read-along episode about how heartbreaking it was to see john hathaway's attempt to 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 right his wrongs go up in flames as the last things he saw before he took his own life Mm -hmm. and missing that does you know, make me make me very sad that we didn't get to see that.
1: Yeah, um, Ashley honestly. even picked John Hathaway as her favorite non-Morpheus character in in a read-along episode. So listen to that if you want to hear more. But um, uh, Sean, what's one thing that you wanted to kind of pull here? Television show, comic, not necessarily compare contrast, but just
2: something that you want to connect back to it. Well, I think I think it's important to note that a comic book, you know, written in the late. Neil Gaiman has always been aware of the market that he's telling stories Mm, in. mm. And the market for comic books in the late 80s for the kind of mature storytelling he wanted to do was very horror-oriented. Those books that were successful were like alan moore's swamp thing that first comic book advertisement for sandman uh advertised it as sophisticated suspense was the exact wording of the advertisement (laughs) right so so it was very much a horror story and as a like basic instinct (laughs) (laughs) exactly almost exactly not not quite at all but okay uh um but and, and you know, as a as a as a horror fan myself, I loved those horrific elements, and I love how slowly over the course of the series, you know, these these more fantasy elements came in too. And now, this the 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 audience is different here, and and of course, as Ben pointed out, the medium is different, and so it's it's the horror elements have been removed almost entirely from mm. this show. Those elements that were there. In the in the original comic book, so I'm thinking of in particular the eternal waking punishment, uh-huh. which was Dream's original punishment. Alex, which you talked about briefly, um, uh, you know, not having. The, I I just found it so like it's such a clever idea, uh-huh. you know, of uh, of the kind of punishment that the Lord of Dreams could give out, to give you that nightmare where you're you always think you're oh finally awake now but you're really not you know and it was it was gruesome and it was smart and it was horrifying so it's those kind of horror elements that i did miss the magical war between burgess and sykes that ends up Mm. with sykes getting his head blown up too you know um but no cats had to die no cats had to die and that's always a plus yes no cats had to die that's kind yes. nice. of that's um, true no so, cats so, had to die so when i when i talked in the beginning about kind <laughs> of smoothing it out about how making it too smooth i think part of what i'm thinking about is the removal of those horror elements that drew mm. me in so much as a kid uh, you know just reading the book for the first time but on the other hand on the other hand they've played up the fantasy elements mm. much more very right? much so um, in a way that they didn't in the original in the original um, mm-hmm. you know in the That's first issue anyway of of the series you didn't even you didn't see Dream's kingdom or anything like that until the until the the, the next issue after that. That's great, excellent. So I think my main
1: pull from from the comic um, is just we we get a lot more of Dream and understanding his character than we do in the comic. And I think that that actually serves the overall drive of the story really well by letting you latch into the character really quickly, right? Seeing him, you know, taking action and, you know, what what is he trying to do, right? There is a nightmare that is in our world that is killing people <laughs> and he feels like it's his responsibility to, to go handle this, uh, even if it might be a little dangerous or it might be, you know, something that he doesn't necessarily have to do. Like, he, you really see that he takes his responsibility uh, to very seriously and that it is something that, you know, he feels like, you know, he needs to clean up because this came from from his realm. And this is one of his subjects and something that that he needs to handle. And so I do like that we and it was a nice way to introduce a an antagonist that we're going to get here for probably the first couple episodes or so is, is what it seems like, um, based off kind of some of the other characters that we've, you know, seen kind of, you know, melded, you know, into one. And so that that was one of the things that, you know, I really felt like, you know, they had a chance to to take a look at what was driving the character forward. And, they decided, you know what, we could give it a bit more drive and we could give it a bit more substance and structure. So that way, you know, if you read the comic after that first one, you know that his he's been gone for a while. You know that his kingdom is falling and that he has to get his items. But he just talks about that he was weak from a thing that he didn't necessarily have to do. Um and that, you know, it was something that took a lot of energy out of him, but he really didn't have to do it. And I like seeing that instead it's like, oh, no, he he felt like he had to do this because I feel like one of the things that you really get from the comic book is that he takes his responsibilities, as I said, very seriously. And so seeing him do that in this very first, like it is the driving action that gets him captured mm-hmm. was him doing his job. Right, and I do think that 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 adds a level of sophistication to the start of the story. That I'll be interested to see how this how this plays out and how they end up really dealing with the with the Corinthian. So,
2: yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I mean, it's definitely true to Dream's character and nicely established like early on. Also, it's interesting how they threaded the needle with the removal of that element of like, you know, him in the comic, as you mentioned, he'd. Was captured because he was weakened from this long arduous journey. We didn't find out what it was for several decades, actually. Um, yeah, I actually don't know what what it was. So let's keep it that. Yeah. W- if we get to Sandman <laughs> Overture, oh, we'll find out. Okay, got uh, it. Um, but that was that was a a a return to the character in the world that I think was published well. I don't remember what year it was published, but it was recently in the back half of the 2010s. But uh, in, in this one, you know, you have to ask a little bit like, well, if this is a being beyond gods, how was he captured so easily? And I think the only real gesture they kind of made towards that was Lucien saying at the beginning, oh, you know, she, she said something like dreams don't, you know, that there's a vulnerability when traveling to the waking world, that regardless of how powerful Sandman is, you know, that, that, that going to The Waking World um, makes him vulnerable, which I think is an interesting thing to have, too, as a, as a, it does give you a little more of a storytelling tool. It gives you an opportunity to up the stakes a bit when you, you know, as, as we get further on into the series, if he's not quite as omnipotent in The Waking World in the television show mm. as he is in the comic series.
3: Right, though Lucian also says nightmares thrive in the waking world, which is an interesting sort of dualism that's been created then, kind of equaling the playing field in a weird way between Dream and the Corinthian that I wasn't expecting. Yeah, I mean, not in any way that the Corinthian doesn't seem,
1: like, the Corinthian knows that he's toast as soon as he shows up. So obviously no issue for him there, but that that act and what's happening definitely helps drive some story here. Mm
3: Mm-hmm. The moment that we finally... This is nothing deep. This is just an observation I had and an errant, unbidden thought while I was watching it. When we finally see the Corinthian... What's in the Corinthian's eye sockets, Mm. I just... They looked like little toddler mouths to me and I just wanted to feed them baby carrots. (laughs) Just like, oh, you look hungry. Here you go. Here's a snack.
1: (laughs) He'd probably reach out very quickly and just bite your finger off, so...
3: Just as long as he doesn't reach for my eyes, I'm fine.
1: I think that actually lends us really nicely into our last section here, uh, which is a wrap up and final thought. So uh, we'll kind of go around the horn here, uh, starting with Sean. Last thought that you had on this episode, Sleep
2: of the Just for the Sandman. I was prepared to think of this show in my head as so I had had a friend who absolutely loved those syndicated science fiction TV shows that you'd see if you turn on the TV like At like two p.m. on a Saturday Mm. on like USA Network or like the Sci-Fi Channel or something like those like cheaply made uh, series that might have some really amazing moments and might have some like a bunch of like really silly dumb moments Uh, and he loved them to the point his name is Brian he loved them to the point that we called those shows uh, Brian's Fiction or um, BriFi because they were just absolutely for him and I was prepared. (laughs) If I needed to to think of this show like that, mm, like a Bri-Fi. like like briefi, and try to appreciate it on that level, given the constraints on resources and um, you know just what you can do working with Netflix and in the medium, and just kind of really dial down uh, my expectations and try to find something to enjoy. And I don't think I had to do that. Mm, I think I can nice. engage with it on its own terms, and I think I can I can genuinely enjoy it. So that was that that made me feel good, and it also gives me licensed to criticize it when I feel like I need to so I'll be happy to continue doing that and uh, yeah but I'll, but but there's enough to enjoy that I feel like I can kind of I can critique it as well you can be critical of something while also thoroughly enjoying it yeah. like that,
1: those aren't those aren't mutually exclusive uh, no. Ashley over to you yeah
3: I'm I'm cautiously optimistic and my optimism primarily honestly comes from the the level of acting that we're seeing um i think you can get a lot of shows that are beautifully directed and beautifully scripted and then the acting just doesn't doesn't rise to the occasion uh i think sometimes you can have a really terrible director and you can have amazing actors and they are just given terrible direction even though you know they're better than that and i think in this case even though, as I've expressed thoroughly, that there are some choices that have been made either direction-wise or scripting-wise that I wouldn't have made myself. I think despite all of that, the actors are taking us on the ride just by their, the sheer force of their talent. Um, and I, I think the fact that Tom Sturge has been able to make Morpheus a believable character um, – is an incredible feat because he's such a difficult character to bring to life because he's not human. Uh, he doesn't have human goals or motivations or, or even a, a rhetoric that is familiar to us. So um, I think that that's a really well done achievement. Uh, I think Boyd Holbrook as the Corinthian is doing an incredible job being menacing in the most charming way possible like I, he's never chewing it in- up he's chewing <laughs> the scenery up. <laughs> With all three mouths, yeah, um, because because in the because in the comic books he's not somebody that you go and say like, yep, that's a charming guy. I want to keep seeing him on every page. Mm, I, mm-hmm. All I want are scenes of the Corinthian now, and I hate that guy. And he's just doing <laughs> such a good job. So yep. I'm just incredibly impressed with that. And even you know, even people like Charles Dance playing a different kind of Burgess, though. I didn't get to see the depth from him that I would have liked. I think what he was given, he he carried well. So because we're getting all of these incredible cast members working together in scenes that give them a different kind of material than probably they're often handed, I'm excited to see them do more of what they do best. And that's, you know, act.
2: <laughs> that's, that's like almost the exact same thing that I say about Stranger Things. It's like, I oh, well, this show's pretty ridiculous, but damn, these kids are just so charming. <gasps> right. I could watch them all day. <laughs> like... <right>. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's, it's sort of like that same thing. It's a thing that Netflix is very good at, it's just finding really good. Uh people you want to watch all the time. Mm-hmm. So I think for my last thing, um, so I actually was listening to another podcast uh
1: that covers the Sandman. It's called Endless, a Sandman Podcast. Great name. Uh, and one of the things that they talked about in this first episode is they talked about um tarot, which is not something I'm super familiar with. I'm a little familiar with it because my friend Brian was here last week and was showing me his tarot cards. Uh, and they were talking about the the tower. And that the tower card, it can symbolize the collapse of everything and the start of a brand new journey. And I thought the fact that they ended very explicitly by having the gates close and have his tower crumble is the last thing you see before he starts this next thing Mm. is definitely fitting into that. Um, And, and again, I just thought that that was a really astute observation from the, the folks, um, Lonnie and Alyssa uh, over at the Endless podcast. And I just really enjoyed that and, you know, not something that I have any familiarity with. And so kind of seeing how this can combine in a much bigger way. uh, I'm also reading, rereading the Lucifer comic by Mike Carey right now and the tarot. And the tarot plays a really important role in driving, in driving that. And yes. so, uh, yeah, just something that I just wanted to throw out there and, uh, another great podcast that, uh, once you get done with ours, if you're looking for more, uh, there's definitely some great stuff out there. So, well, I think that wraps it up for this
2: week's episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sandman Unlocked.
3: And remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story. Thanks for tuning in to the Sandman Unlocked, an Odd Conduit media production. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sandman Unlocked. Join us on Discord as well. Thanks to our show producer, Patrick Childers, and to Lieutenant Headtrip for our theme and incidental music. If you'd like to support us directly, head over to our Patreon. You can follow Ashley on Twitter at D-E-E-D-E-E underscore K and on Instagram and TikTok at Ashley Mowers. Find Sean on Twitter at Lon Dogson and find Headtrip everywhere at Lt Headtrip. You can get all of this info and more in the show notes. Make sure to follow and subscribe and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, and remember never trust the storyteller, only trust the story.
0: Odd Conduit Media.